Okay, we're coming to God's Word, and we're continuing in our series in 1 John, working out and developing clear convictions. And so we're looking at 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, 15 to 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride in possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the word of the Lord. Now, in my interactions with fellow Christians over the years, um, I've noticed that there are some variations in how people view obedience. Some have the disposition, actually, of being like a rule keeper. Others seem to have this tendency to want to break the rules. And then there are many more who are either unaware of what they are or they're just neutral to rules and the required obedience to them. Now, at this point, you might be thinking, okay, what am I? Not me, but you, right? What are you? Either that or you're thinking, what is Danny talking about? <laughs> well, <clears throat> rest assured, obedience, it is a mainstay feature of the Christian faith. The reality is, though, that we are by nature all rule breakers. That's simply what it means to be a sinner. But of course, salvation in Jesus um, changes us so that we would slowly turn the ship of our hearts to want to be obedient to God's law. And yet our dispositions pull us in our directions. I mean, just generally speaking, you know, there's some people who, like, they have to get the dishes done by 7 p.m. at night, otherwise they can't sleep. So that's their rule, right? Others who have, cannot allow gas in their car to go below a quarter tank. That's the rule. They have to fill up, right? Otherwise, they get all anxious. See, we all have these certain rules to follow in our lives. And some who, well, they don't like to follow rules. But I'm not just talking about rules in general. I'm not talking about that kind of rule keeping. I mean, because everyone's got th their thing. But what really matters is obedience to God's commandment. That's what John is focused on, us being obedient to, John, to God's commandment. And what is this commandment? Well, in chapter 2, he said it was old and new in verse 7 and 8. Let me, let me point, read that for us. 1 John 2, 7 says, Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Okay? And he, so he draws this distinction between um, an old and new commandment, but then he also says in verse 4 that he speaks of a different, not different, but he speaks of commandments. So he's drawing another distinction, commandments versus the commandment. And all of these ways are, um, is John talking about and focusing on God's law coming down to the commandment. And what is the commandment? The great commandment, to love God and to love neighbor as oneself. 
John said that God had ordained this commandment from the very beginning, from creation, which means this is what life is all about. I mean, just imagine, how good would it be? How good would life be if you were around people who obeyed the great commandment? I mean, think about that, right? Isn't that what our Heavenly Father wants? I mean, that would make for some church, right? I mean, raise your hand. Do you want to obey the great commandment? Do you really love and want to obey the great commandment? Raise your hand, please. How many of us here? <laughs> Raising your hand is far more significant than you realize. We'll come back to that. How can we grow in obedience to God's commandment? John shows us the way to enhance our obedience. It's one vital way, and that is to get in touch with your desires. We're not getting in touch with our feelings or our emotions, but we want to get in touch with our desires, the desires of our hearts. That's what we're going to see from our text today. And the big idea is that we want to be able to regulate our desires in any and every circumstance in life to desire obedience to God's commandment. Okay? Our first point, no love. John says in verse 15, do not love the world or the things in the world. Now, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, then this prohibition should not come as a surprise to you. Having said that, I do want to point out that it may not be as obvious to some as it is to others. Why might someone be confused or surprised by this prohibition? Do not love the world or the things in the world. Well, it's because they probably have in mind John 3.16 where it says, for God so loved the world, Right? But here we're told not to love the world, and what's going on there? I mean, I've touched on this before, but we all need to know the difference and even be able to explain the difference between the world and the creation. John uses the word world in a very specific way, and this distinction is critical to get. I mean, if you do know the distinction between the world and creation, how do you explain it? Right? Well, let me explain. The creation is good because it was made by God. But the creation was also affected by sin and the fall of man. And so we're now living in the fallen creation, which John refers to as the world. In John's writing, the word world means that sphere of fallen humanity, where, where fallen humanity operates because with fallen humanity, there are spiritual forces behind it, spiritual forces that would oppose God. See, the world is basically the devil's playground. That's why it's on this natural path towards corruption and death. It's as if the devil tempted man to sin and took that sin and smeared his fingerprints all over, touched everything in creation so that it would be tainted. Think of that child who licks the donut, and not just one part, but the whole donut so that no one else can have the donut, right? That's what the devil did with the creation. So what is good is the creation, and we're meant to marvel at what has been referred to as the theater of God's glory, the creation. We're to praise God for his handiwork. We're to live in this blessed creation. We're to enjoy it. We're to steward it for God's purposes. That was what God had ordained for Adam to do, but he failed to do it. And once we use the creation, not for God's purposes, not as it was meant to be, for, for unrighteous purposes, 
even if it's unintentional, well, that's because of the world. We've been influenced by the world and the forces that would lead us to corruption and sin. That's the spiritual perspective on this material creation. And we're going to see more of what that looks like in just a moment. But let me just conclude this idea. God so loved the world, we are not to, right? <clears throat> so what is the difference in some practical ways? John says, do not love the world or the things in the world. He gets specific and he points out, don't love the things of the world. Why does he say that? Well, it's because that's how we misuse God's good creation. We sin with even the good things that God has given to us. The devil licks the donut, and then we lick the donut right after him. And the classic example is technology. We've got many tech workers here. They're making good products and services. They're doing good in the world, and this is God's common grace for the world to flourish so that the creation would not completely disintegrate. But there are those people who use tech for really bad purposes, too. They promote hate. They promote smut. I mean, it's just so disheartening, isn't it, that most of the internet traffic in the world go through porn sites, right? The creation is good, but this is the world. And the effects of the world get more subtle. Social media, it's feeding that deadly duo of news and politics. They're, speeding, they're feeding um, that duo to us. <laughs> Spoons of like radioactive sludge and we have our mouths wide open. We're consuming it and we're getting damaged by it. It's right before all of our, our eyes. Both sides are saying, look at those toxic people over there, right? And Christians get caught up in that. It's not good for our health. It's not good for us, really. But more than that, what if it causes us to sin? And what if it causes us to sin in the same church? I mean, that's what we're seeing in society, right? And I don't think it's happening here, but it's always right underneath the surface. What if something in the news caused a rupture in our fellowship? And you sinned against another, or you caused someone to sin, you caused them to stumble. Would you stop consuming the news? I mean, I'm not saying be ignorant, but would you stop consuming the news? Or might you just love it too much? Justify yourself in the name of truth and justice as if that was the greatest commandment. The world has the power to distort the creation. Are we getting the difference there? Do not love the world. Don't be quick also to say, oh, no, I don't love the world. We need to be careful about how the world can trick us to love the things of the world a little too much. No love there. Second point, one love. You know, the, greater con the wider context, chapter 2, John is telling us to be obedient to the great commandment, loving God and neighbor as oneself. That's the positive command that John puts forward in verses 7 and 8. And he's making it crystal clear for us by contrasting it with the negative in this passage. Don't love the world or the things in the world, right? Here's what you should love. Here's what you shouldn't love. Many know the, the name Rosario Butterfield. She is the psalm-singing, homeschooling heroine who happened to be the ex-lesbian um, feminist uh, English professor, right? Well, she wrote this article uh, that's dismantling the LGBTQ slogan, Love is Love. 
Right? That's the danger when you put something out there, something good and positive. Love is love. And everyone thinks it's just so obvious. But with that, there are actually a whole load of assumptions that are brought in. We need to be clear about what love is and what love is not in order for us to, agree, to all agree on it. And that's what John is doing for us. Love God and his neighbors as self. Do not love the world and the things in the world. And John presses this point where we have to recognize that last phrase in verse 15. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. I mean, that sounds serious. It also sounds quite logical. If I love this, then I don't love that, right? Well, actually, that logic works when we're dealing with when you could only have, like, one thing. Like, there is only one highest love that we can have. That's because we're dealing with God. And he's the one who deserves the highest and the most exclusive love of all because God is in a league of his own. He's far, he far surpasses everything and everyone else. And so if we're in a relationship with him, we're to give him what he is deserved. Worship, love. It's just the same logic that Jesus was working with when he said, you cannot serve two masters. And there are powers and authorities over us. Some are obvious like the government. Others are not as obvious like the spiritual realm that wrongly claims the world. <clears throat> See, John is making it clear. You could only have one supreme love. Okay? And he continues in his logic, verse 16. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Right? What's the logic? If I love the world, then I don't love the Father. But also, that love for the world, well, that did not come from the Father. The Father would not put a love for the world in us. What the Father put in us is a love for him and a love for his commandment so that we would actually obey it where we love one another. Love for the world, again, that comes from a different power source. And we want to be clear about that one love and where it comes from. Third, many false loves. Love this, love, not that, right? How are we to specifically not love the world and the things in it? Verse 16 again. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride and possessions um, or the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. See, John's identifying for us uh, these desires in our hearts that operate like the world. These desires are the loves of the heart, and I'm using desires and love synonymously, even though there's a distinction to be made. And this is actually quite a very, uh, I don't want to say popular, but it is a well-known passage. And I've always struggled to understand the difference between, like, what's the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes? Maybe you were taught some kind of simple way to helpfully know the difference there. But let me share what, what I've come to realize through research and, and thinking about this some more. The way I've since to come to learn to, to distinguish the desires of the flesh um, and the desires of the eyes is that the desires of the flesh, those are the internal cravings. The desires of the eyes are the external temptations. And the pride in possessions, what is that? Well, that's where we reinforce and not repent of the cravings and, and temptations that are satisfied. 
Okay, I'll explain more of that in just a moment. But you know, let me just use, explain by using the classic examples of like the three big vices, sex, money, and power. Okay? Desires of the flesh are the internal cravings. These are like sexual cravings that arise from within. But no one is actually left, let off the hook here because there are all kinds of cravings of the flesh, like comfort cravings. These are like pain avoidance and indulging convenience. And that's why ordinary decent folks could still be guilty of sinful desires of the flesh. See, it's my comfort craving over putting myself out for somebody in obedience to the great commandment. That's when it becomes a problem. Those are the desires of the flesh. The desires of the eyes, those are the external temptations that we see in the world. Greed within, it locks its sights on something outside of us, like money and all the things that money can accomplish for us. That's just a typical example, the external temptations. But it could be also ideas or values, things you can't see, like image. Just thinking about the teenagers here. I want to be this kind of teenager or that kind of teenager. And then there's a subset that wants to be the anti-teenager, right? I'm just thinking of that t-shirt that I see some teenagers wear. The anti-social social club, right? <laughs> TikTok has many options for teens and the kind of image that they can have. And why, though? Why might image matter to teens? Well, very innocently, they want to belong. They want to belong to a friend group. A friend group that they see and are attracted to, though, right? I mean, do you desire friendship for the sake of friendship or because of the image that comes with friendship? That can only come from what your eyes see. God has created friendships, and friendships are meant to be very good. It's natural to want to be with people and to, that you have in common with and to belong. But what matters more? Is it some image that I have to maintain or the great commandment that opens us up to all kinds of people that we would never have expected or imagined of meeting and being with. I mean, that's us right here, the church, right? How amazing is that? I mean, I'm, I'm talking about teens, but I think it does apply to even adults too, right? Those are the um, desires of the eyes. And then lastly, there's the pride of possessions. I've been using pride of possessions. I, know, I don't know what your Bible says. Some say pride of life. I think pride of life captures the thought more accurately. Now, the pride of possessions or pride of life, it sounds superficial on the surface, right? It's like you're just imagining that person who just typically, they just flaunt themselves. Some do it a little bit more tactfully, like the humble brag. But again, the pride of possessions, the pride of life, this is widespread. Subtle, but it's widespread. It's the positive reinforcement of satisfied cravings and temptations. Instead of recognizing the dangers of some desires that we have that would lead us down a path towards sin, we not only go for it, we enjoy it, and we justify it, and we're convinced of it. 
I, I'm using the classic example of, pro, of power. I can make so much happen for myself. It gives me a sense of being in control. And then I start to feel secure and confident, but, that, but then that control and confidence, it slips into domination with no regrets. I'm not talking about Russian oligarchs here. I'm talking about the sweet housewife and the hardworking dad. Do we love obeying the great commandment or making sure people around us obey me? I mean, what, what I, either love, we're going to struggle, but one leads to repentance and the other does not. Okay? These are the temptations that we all face. And John says, do not love the world or the things in the world, these desires. There's a lot of overlap in these desires, but I hope we can start to see the distinctions. See, these are all false desires. They synergize together, and they cause a person to live a certain way, um, walk in a certain direction, and pursue a certain vision of how they want their lives to turn out. Now, if you like to take personality tests, um, you want to find out about who you are, right? Well, here is the gold standard, the personality test that um, the Bible gives us right here, where we work out the desires of our hearts. And we have these broad categories to work with and help us. And whether you like to take personality tests or not, actually, um, this is for all of us to take, where we work out the desires of our hearts. And identifying these desires, that is the start of how we grow and enhance our obedience to God's commandment. Now wait, you're thinking, I shouldn't have these desires. That's what John says, if I love the Father, then I shouldn't have these desires. Or if I love the world, then I don't love the Father, right? Can, there can only be one true love. And this could be troubling, going down this line of thinking, even though we need to. Not going to lie, right, is what the kids say. I do have a lot of these desires. Let's be honest. But then does that mean I don't love the Father? And see, John, he's got this way of confronting us with the way he just like, simply puts it. And he like, we feel cornered by this word. Is there a way out? Yes. And I'm going to touch on that phrase, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him, um, a little more at the end. But our way out, our final point, no world. <clears throat> Verse 17 says this, and the world is passing away along with its, with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Right? What, is, what does that mean? The world as we know it will not last. It is dying and it will be gone. That's what passing away means. And that phrase, passing away, is, is very significant for us, even though you might not see it and it doesn't sound like it right off the bat. But this is our word of hope. How can the significance of the world and its desire passing away, desires passing away, be brought out a little bit more? Let me explain this way. It's the power of story and the story of power. Okay, it's the power of story. Whose story are you in? Okay, John presents the story of the world. 
<laughs> the world and its desires are passing away. It's going to come to nothing. What are we desiring? Because the story that we're in, that determines what we really desire. I mean, just think, how many friends and family do you um, know that, you know, they might be nominally religious? They find a sense of security from this misguided thought that I believe and so I'm going to heaven. Right? I'm sure we all know people like that and their life doesn't reflect that. They've got the story wrong, actually. <laughs> and so, of course, their desires are all flawed, too. I'm not talking about those people over there. I'm talking about us, right? Trying to deal with our sense of recognizing, yeah, I think I have these desires too, our flawed desires. And so we have a decision to make. Whose story are we in? It's not about going to heaven. It's about God. Are we with him or not? And where I'm going with this idea of being in God's story is that we have to recognize the story of power, <laughs> real power. See, when we talk about, you know, are you in God's story? Yeah, I'm sure we've heard Christians talk about that as well. We often overlook the perspective that um, the, what's implied is that I am siding with a person. I am siding with a power. The options aren't, am I in God's story or am I my own story? It's God's story uh, or the story of the other power, the power of darkness. See, who is the real power? God who decreed that the world and its desires are passing away or the devil who would try to nurture and reinforce the worldly desires in us, encouraging us to write our own stories. He's the captain of the ship, and he is going down with it. And he's trying to take as many people with him as possible. Having said all that, John doesn't even give him an honorable mention in this passage because we're talking about the greater power that is at work in us. Okay? There's a lot of significance attached to this phrase, passing away, that we're meant to hold on to. Let me just draw it out a little bit more. For instance, earlier, John said that the darkness is passing away, verse 8. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Back in um, verse 8, it meant that Jesus has overcome the evil one, where Jesus' light is greater than the devil's darkness, so he has been disarmed, his power has been neutralized, and we are in that light, right? That means his power is at work in you, Jesus' power. What's true in him is true in you, says John. And that's why when we're in the light, we can see the goodness of God's commandment, and we can actually fully obey the great commandment without condemnation. Not perfectly, but without condemnation. That's the darkness is passing away. And then here, John says that the world is passing away. That means the devil's instruments and his weapons are slowly dying and disintegrating. The world and the things in the world. They're losing its power and its grip over people because instead the Father's love is gripping them instead. Isn't that us? 
The Father has gripped us with his love in Christ. The Puritan Thomas Chalmers says that just to fight against disobedience, just to try to fight against disobedience, just to like try not to pursue the worldly desires, that doesn't prove to be a long-term strategy that works. Okay? He says what we need is a new love, a more powerful affection to displace our worldly desires. Okay? The example is, how do you remove air from a beaker, a glass beaker? Right? You can try to suction it out, take away all the bad things. Don't do all the bad things. Get rid of all the badly desires. Or you simply add water, and it pushes all the air out, right? And the water that you add, that is the story of God's power at work in us. Our grip on the world and its desires, it can be released. We need to hear that. Now, you might not feel it. You might not feel all this all these fluttery thought feelings of like love for God, but John wants us to know that we have a greater power at work in us. The world and its desires are passing away, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is a two-step process. We do need to take away the desires of the world and the things of the world and the love of the world, but we also need to be able to embrace the will of God. But what is this will of God? It's this... Two, there's this two-step process, right? The world is going down. We're not aligning with that power there. But the new has to replace that space, and I'm trying to align with God and do his will. The will of God. John doesn't say whoever obeys God abides forever. He doesn't say whoever controls his desires abides forever. He says, whoever does the will of God abides forever. What is this will of God? Well, the will of God, first and foremost, is that the Son would obey the Heavenly Father. He would obey the Father even to the point of death. And it would take his life. But in doing so, that would actually turn into life for many. In giving your life, Life gets multiplied to many. And that is the power of the great commandment. That is God's will. And God wants us to experience that power. He, that is his will for us in Jesus. That's why he sent Jesus. How do we experience it? Let's drill down into that. The will of God. It's what John wrote so far. That we might not sin. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. What is the will of God? When it comes to our sin, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. This is the will of God. And when we zero in on that, the sins that we're talking about are at the level of our desires. I don't know if you've ever thought of that. Maybe you think sin is just my bad behavior. But John brings it down to the level of our hearts and our hearts' desires. And what we either reinforce 
or what we repent of. I wonder if we've gotten into the practice of examining our hearts, recognizing if I have any of these worldly desires, which means confessing and recalibrating our desires in the process. It's where we're saying no to desiring the world and yes to desiring to love God and my neighbor as myself. That's God's will that abides forever. Let me um, just briefly mention two points of application then. First, it turns out that our hearts are in a competition to have certain desires win out, okay? And maybe I could put it like this. Your desires control you unless you control your desires, right? Your desires control you unless you actively control your desires. What that means is that we are all living by our desires and we don't even realize it. Our desires are like gravity. It's always going to try to find the lowest point. And the world encourages this in us, to follow your desires, to follow your heart, unless you're controlling your desires, to not love the world and the things in the world. Don't do that, and you're being controlled by the power of the world. It's like Lady Folly from Proverbs chapter 9. We read it earlier. She's constantly turning. I'm calling um, people to turn back to, to her. If you don't want to be aware of your desires, aware of your desires and try to control it, you're the simple one that she lures. We have agency in all of this. We're working with the powers that are over us. That's first. Second, growth requires both. Growth requires both. And by that, mean, by that I mean you need both the positive and the negative. I, I think I've explained the concept where the new affection has to displace the old affection, and you need to do, be working on both, right? The, the modern illustration, what is that? It's the familiar but painful formula for weight loss. Less intake, more expenditure. If you want to see a net, right? You've got to have both there. doesn't really work if you just eat less. You have to burn more calories, too. I know, if that's a painful illustration, <laughs> let me try something more spiritual. How about that? <laughs> How about John the Baptist's formula? He must increase and I must decrease. Both need to happen. But we all have a tendency to do one or the other, and not really both very well. It's like our obedience. We have a certain disposition, right? And when it comes to increasing or decreasing, it's one or the other. If you focus on the negative, like I must decrease, you're probably always feeling guilty. And with that, what you are doing is disregarding the beautiful truths of the gospel. That's what we want to not do. We need to embrace the beauty and the power and the truth of the gospel too. Now, if you, uh, if you tend to focus only on the positive, then you can get lost in praise and wonder, wonderful, you understand the beautiful truths of the gospel, but actually there is so much more to understand, so much more beauty to experience when you start to recognize your sin and the cost to God. What does it look like to do both well? Confessing faith, confessing sin. You know, we actually do all of this, but 
this might have been the first time that you've heard it being articulated that explicitly and clearly. We confess our faith and we confess our sin. <laughs> Confessing faith is positively saying God's will over mine. He is who I'm siding with. Him over darkness. And we can confess that with like song and praise, intentionally thinking, I am in God's story. I am on his team. His power is over me. These confessions are just as powerful as when we confess sin. Who raised their hands when uh, I asked earlier, do you love the great commandment? That's a very simple confession of faith. And all of us need to be able to not just raise our hands, really, but even to be able to say it, because that's how it starts us getting to believe it and live it. Negatively, let me just direct you to the line that I quickly passed over. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Here's a test case for us, right? You might hear that ver verse, and you might think, oh, man, I have all these desires that are worldly, I recognize that, you, you know, you, you might be able to humbly admit that, but then you start to feel guilty about it. And you're struggling with it, you're fighting with it, it's an intense fight, and you might, be feel, you might feel like you're losing at it, and so you might come to conclude, oh, if I love the world, then I do not have the love of the Father in me. Maybe the Father doesn't love me. Maybe I don't love the Father. It's easy to draw conclusions like that if you're constantly thinking negatively. But that's not the guilt that John wants, to, wants us to have. We must dispense with that conclusion. He wants us to be able to see this negative and confront the opportunity to stop and think and boldly and clearly embrace the right conviction. We could read these negative statements, and they're meant to help us. They're meant to confront us and challenge us. But then when we work through it, we're meant to be able to say, no. I do have the love of the Father in me. I do love the Father. I do not love the world. Even though we struggle and even though it's hard, we need to be able to say that. <clears throat> and so even when we read these negative what seems like negative verses or clauses, it's to make us to claim the positive, the good news, our gospel. Growth requires both, the negative and the positive. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we want to grow. We want to grow to be obedient children, sons and daughters who love you and who love your word and who love one another as ourselves. Sometimes it's hard to believe that. Sometimes it's really hard to live it. But despite how we feel, despite our performance, we know that to be the truth. We know that to be the way of life everlasting. And so we pray that you would give those desires to us. You would keep changing our hearts. You would keep refining us and growing us so that we would love you your word, your ways, one another as ourselves. Help us to be that kind of church, and may we be infectious and radiating towards others and our wider community so that many would be able to hear about the amazing love of you, our Heavenly Father, and how you have showed it to us in Jesus.
Oh, that sweet gospel news, how we love it and how we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, with that, we come to the table.